So then we come here to the last section, which will actually leak into uh, chapter 11, because we're going to see that this little book, when John consumes it, it's sweet in his lips and bitter in his stomach. And it's kind of hard to see why until we get into chapter 11. So remember this, uh, this interval in the chronological series of events in Revelation, where we're taking a break from the chronology, we're stepping back into John's time and seeing what's happening with him during his visions. This uh, interlude is both chapters 10 and 11, not just chapter 10 and 11 being different interlude. Uh, we will erase that chapter mark uh, between these two chapters and realize they are all one singular vision. So we read first a command that's given to John. Uh, we read, then the voice which I heard from heaven, I heard again speaking with me and saying, go take the book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel telling him to give me the little book. And he said to me, take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. So we already looked at one verse from Jeremiah, where Jeremiah consumed God's words. Uh, but here's another instance. But we see the voice from heaven again, which is most likely uh, some member of the Godhead, calling down to Daniel or to John, and he is obedient. Uh, this obedience is important for God to reveal himself. God reveals himself to obedient servants, uh, the prophets. We see this starting here with Samuel, where God calls to Samuel three times in the night, um, and he keeps thinking it's his, uh, his master, Eli, who's calling for him. Finally, Eli tells him, no, go lay down. It's it probably the voice of God. Listen to it next time. Tell him, uh, your servant is here. So we read, then the Lord came and stood and called at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak, for your servant is listening. The Lord said to Samuel, behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel, at which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. Now that uh, judgment that God was telling Samuel about was actually judgment against his master, Eli, whose two sons had been, uh, had been uh, less than God had intended them to be. Uh, <clears throat> we see Isaiah uh, following a similar pattern here as a prophet, as a faithful prophet of God. We read in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 8 through 9, Then I heard the, ver the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. He said, go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Now, this was part of Isaiah's commission as prophet. And God first had to uh, test Isaiah's faithfulness um, in order to give him that message, which he would then have to give to Israel, because it's not a pretty message. Uh, a lot of it has to do, in fact, the vast majority of the prophet's message was a message of judgment, but there was also always a glimmer of hope uh, in that final kingdom of Jesus Christ, or uh, through the Old Testament, of the Christ uh, that was yet to come. And this came immediately after Isaiah's preparation, uh, which again had to do with 
touching something to his lips. So it says, then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. So we see that a prophet has to be prepared and then obedient to God's word. And so John is giving us essentially his resume here of obedience to this angel, but he's also uh, being very careful to follow what he was explicitly told in the first chapter to do, which was to write everything that he saw. But when he is told again, specifically not to write something, he doesn't write about that. So we see him acting very faithfully, and that should give us uh, cause to believe him uh, as he is writing, as he is speaking, that all of these little minor details that seem minor, at least, uh, for example, here in chapter 10, if he is so careful to record those details, the other details which he's recording for us, he's also being very careful about. Uh, so here in Jeremiah, we see when he consumes these words, we read already in verse 15, a little earlier, that he's essentially been isolated from his entire community, that the message that God has given him has made him a social outcast. Uh, naturally, anyone coming in, uh, giving a message of judgment is not going to be well received. But uh, there is a juxtaposition here with the consuming of God's word, where it is sweet, although it leads to uh, pain at times in recognizing God's necessary judgments. Jeremiah, we continue to read, your words were found and I ate them and your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I have been called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. I did not sit in the circle of merrymakers, nor did I exult. Because of your hand upon me, I sat alone, for you filled me with indignation. So the office of a prophet is not one that anyone would necessarily want, but it's not one that comes without blessing because uh, that intimate relationship which the prophet can have with God, uh, the intimate fellowship which he has with God, supersedes the temporal uh, the temporal difficulties that they have on this earth because they know because they've seen it firsthand the greatness of the glory of god yet to come uh, and it makes all that earthly turmoil bearable but as we're, we're going to see in a second it's also very necessary for the prophet to undergo some of those difficulties on earth uh, we see also ezekiel consuming god's word in chapter three we read then he said to me, son of man, eat what you find, eat the scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he fed me this scroll. He said to me, son of man, feed your stomach and fill your body with this scroll, which I am giving you. Then I ate it and it was sweet as honey in my mouth. So this could naturally bring to mind, especially here in the Old Testament context of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, uh, memories of Deuteronomy, which as kids, they would have heard, recited, and probably memorized, uh, that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word uh, that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So we see here the very sustenance of these prophets being the word of God, where they're able to undergo persecution and judgment because of the word of God. And although they recognize the outer turmoil of this world, it's bearable 
because of the promise that they've seen firsthand with their eyes. That is the sweetness of God's word. So Ezekiel uh, also takes God's word, and in this case, rather than using the, uh, the imagery of eating it, we see that it's going into his heart. So moreover, he said to me, son of man, take into your heart all my words, which I will speak to you, and listen closely. Go to the exiles, to the sons of your people, and speak to them and tell them, whether they listen or not, thus says the Lord God. So the prophet's duty, the prophet's mission is, uh, is not an easy one. It's a very difficult one where they have to go into the population and actually uh, interact with real people. So they can't just be given uh, the words on a script that they're supposed to say, but through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, uh, they, they have to convey the message of God. So that involves more than just reciting what they heard, but taking it in so completely that it affects every part of who they are, of their body, uh, of their heart, in a similar way that food, when we take it in, it it physically becomes part of us. So this consumption imagery continues in chapter uh, 10 and 11, where we see, or in verse 10 and 11, where uh, John actually does eat this book. And again, I, I do believe that this is a literal book that John is consuming in this vision from the angel. Uh, quite often, prophets are called to do uh, to do picture images of things that are happening spiritually. And I think it brings the lesson much closer to them. For example, I think it was Ezekiel who actually was told to, to build a small model of Jerusalem. And he was told to gather different kitchen utensils uh, and reenact the siege of Jerusalem that was about to happen. Uh, so we see God uses even this simple imagery that we might want to use in a Sunday school sermon uh, in order to train these uh, prophets, but he gives them a very visual uh, understanding of the words that he's giving them as well. So here we read, I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and in my mouth it was sweet as honey, and when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And they said to me, you must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Um, so again, one more note on what I just said about the uh, about this being a literal book and a literal angel that John ate. Uh, there should not necessarily be any distinction between uh, we see them literally doing here using natural resources and what they're literally doing concerning supernatural resources, because from God's perspective, there is no difference here. And John is writing what he's literally seeing and literally hearing. Uh, so this would have been something that John literally uh, had done regarding this book that a literal angel who he saw in a vision had given him. So in Psalm 119, 103, 104, we see God's word depicted as sweet uh, to taste. So how sweet are your words to my taste? Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. For your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. We see also that God's judgment is sweet. Um, so not only his word, but his word of judgment. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. 
they are more desirable than gold, less than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. That's Psalm 19. But for those upon whom judgment comes, this judgment is bitter. In Numbers 5, uh, verses 23 to 24, we read, and this, this is uh, going to be a couple of verses here, 10 verses or so. And it's, uh, it was part of the law that was given to Israel in order to test uh, the honesty uh, of whether or not a woman had had an affair or not. But it uses the same imagery here that we see with John. So let's read it and then I'll pull it apart a bit here. The priest shall then write these curses on a scroll, and that's the curses that are about to see actually take place in, this, uh, in these verses. So the priest shall then write these curses on a scroll, and he shall wash them off into the water of bitterness. So this is the word of God being written on a scroll and washed off into water of bitterness. Then he shall make the woman drink the water of bitterness that brings a curse so that the water which brings a curse will go into her and cause bitterness. The priest shall take the grain offering of jealousy from the woman's hand, and he shall wave the grain offering before the Lord and bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take a handful of grain offering as its memorial offering and offer it up in smoke on the altar. And afterward, he should make the woman drink the water. When he has made her drink the water, then it shall come about. If she has filed herself and has been or unfaithful to her husband, that the water which brings a curse will go into her and cause bitterness, and her abdomen will swell and her thigh will waste away, and the woman will become a curse among her people. But if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, she will then be free and conceive children. So this is part of the law, and it might be, uh, as we go through even mind-boggling, why is this here? What, what's this even talking about? Well, it, it was a literal law that Israel abided by, but it also has, uh, has a function in looking at the spiritual picture of Israel as well, because Israel is depicted as a, an adulterous wife. Uh, we are in the book of Ezekiel, we see that the 10 northern kingdoms and the two uh, southern kingdoms are depicted as uh, adulterous sisters, where the second becomes even worse than the first, the second uh, including Jerusalem. So that when we come to this imagery again in the book of Revelation, we should be reminded of uh, this judgment that comes on an adulterous wife, that this bitterness would enter into her stomach. And this judgment that's coming in the second half of Revelation is a judgment against Israel. It's a judgment against Israel for her harlotry in choosing the Antichrist over the Christ. Because as we read in Matthew 5, Jesus Christ tells first century Israel, me you have not received, but another is coming and him you will receive. So they have not uh, confirmed the king God's choosing, but rather they have put another one over them who is probably from a Gentile nation again, which God told them not to do. This is what they will do during the time of the tribulation. They will put a Gentile king over them 
and that king will turn out to be this antichrist. So this bitterness that is in John's stomach, him being part of this nation of Israel still, although he is also part of the church. So that's why we see the sweetness and the bitterness, uh, where the sweetness of God's judgment being the conclusion of all of the evil that has ever happened ever since Adam's fall until the very last uh, the very last day of this world, that this judgment and completion is sweet, uh, but at the same time, part of this judgment is coming against Israel, and that is bitter for John. So we also see in uh, Lamentations chapter 3, verses 1, 5, and 15, this imagery of bitterness. I am the man who has seen affliction because of the rod of his wrath and has besieged and it encompassed me with bitterness and hardship. He has filled me with bitterness. He has made me drunk with wormwood. All of these prophets uh, who the Lord was giving prophecies against Israel were also part of the nation of Israel. None of them were outside of the scope of this judgment. Jeremiah wrote, Then the Lord stretched out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have appointed you this day over the nations and over the kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. And then in Ezekiel chapter 4, verses 7 8, we read, then you shall set your face towards the siege of Jerusalem with your arm bared and the prophecy against it. Now behold, I will put ropes on you so that you cannot turn from one side to the other until you have completed the days of your siege. So again, we see Ezekiel physically involved with these judgments that are coming on Israel so that he is negatively affected by them. As well, we read a little later in Ezekiel, chapter 24, Son of man, behold, I am about to take from you the desire of your eyes with a blow, but you shall not mourn, and you shall not weep, and your tears shall not come. Groan silently, make no mourning for the dead. Bind on your turban, and put your shoes on your feet, and do not cover your mustache, and do not eat the bread of men. So I spoke to the people in the morning, and in the evening my wife died, and in the morning I did as I was commanded. Now this, again, is sometimes a very hard picture to, to, uh, to wrap our minds around from the book of Ezekiel, where God actually takes his wife from him physically, and he does this in order to teach Ezekiel uh, about the reason for the judgments that are coming on Israel. Again, God uses this imagery with Ezekiel of an adulterous wife or of a wife that has died. So that so grievous is this wife dying to Ezekiel, but it barely even amounts to the grief that God undergoes in his chosen people, Israel, uh, spiritually dying. Uh, so, we see, again, these physical pictures are given to these prophets in order to teach them a more complete understanding of God's word so that it's not just words, but it's really driven home for them. Uh, 
but we want to continue into chapter 11 for the first two verses in order to see what this bitterness uh, is for John that uh, we, we have, uh, yeah, so, so what exactly is this bitterness that John is enduring here? Uh, and it has to do with Jerusalem and particularly the temple of Jerusalem. So we read, and there was given me a measuring rod like a staff. And someone said, get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship it. Leave out the court, which is outside the temple. and Do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations. and They will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. Now, the siege of Jerusalem with Titus Vespasian, who uh, sacked Jerusalem, tore down the temple, removed all the gold, and brought it to Rome, that has already happened 25 years prior to John's vision. So this is not speaking of uh, the temple of Herod, which was uh, present in Jesus Christ's day. This is speaking of what's called the third temple. And this will arise during the time of the tribulation, likely uh, some accord between the Antichrist and Israel, possibly even when uh, when they strike their deal with the Antichrist that we're told of in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. So what's happening here has to do not with the temple of God, but with the temple that was commissioned by the Antichrist to put in Jerusalem uh, in those last days. But God is still saying to measure the temple of God and the altar and those who are worshiping in it. But what's being left out is the outer court. And that outer court was the place where people were allowed to, to be uh, in the original temple, whereas the temple and the altar uh, would only be for the high priest. This correlates to the Holy of Holies uh, in the temple. So the idea of measurement, uh, it has to do with God measuring out his own possessions. In Revelation 21, 15, the fourth temple, the eternal temple, will be measured. Uh, we read, the one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gate and its walls. God measures this temple uh, because it is his own possession. In Zechariah 2, uh, we see the same concept. I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a man with a measuring line in his hand. So I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see how wide it is and how long it is. For thus says the Lord of hosts, after glory, he has sent against the nations which plunder you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. God has measured out the temple in order to measure what is his so that he could wager. Uh, uh, da -da -da. The judgment coming against those nations which have trampled Israel. This measuring also. Uh, divides between what God calls holy and what God calls profane, so that we can see still the temple, the altar, and those who worship in it. God is calling holy, but everything outside, which has been given to the Gentile nations, is profaned. In Ezekiel 42, uh, we read, he measured it on the four sides. It had a wall all around it, the length 500 and the width 500, to divide between the holy and the profane. Now, this comes after 
three chapters of detailing every little individual element that is measured in Ezekiel's temple. Uh, and this, this temple of Ezekiel is likely looking forward to the eternal temple or, or the fourth temple. Now, this all has to do, again, with this idea of the time of the Gentiles, because this period of the tribulation is that capstone in the time of the Gentiles. To understand the time of the Gentiles, we have to understand what God promised to Israel in the Mosaic Covenant. And again, we're going to spend a lot more time on this later on. In fact, we're going to do the Mosaic Covenant before we do the Land Covenant. So this is actually coming in a couple of weeks. But here we'll take a brief look at it. In Exodus chapter 19, we read, Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant as a condition, then you shall be my own position among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So God has offered to Israel the opportunity to be his theocratic kingdom on earth. But they are not given it without conditions. They have been given a promise in the Abrahamic uh, covenant, but in order to enjoy that promise, they must be obedient to the Mosaic covenant. Now, it goes without saying that Israel was not obedient to this Mosaic covenant, so that we read in Ezekiel 39 uh, that Israel will be dispersed and trampled down, and this uh, this kingdom on earth will instead be given to the Gentiles. So we read, And I will set my glory among the nations, being the Gentiles, and all the nations will see my judgment, which I have executed, and my hand, which I have laid on them, uh, being the house of Israel. And the house of Israel will know that I am the Lord their God from that day onward. The nations will know that the house of Israel went into exile for their iniquity, because they acted treacherously against me, and I hid my face from them, so I gave them into the hand of their adversaries, and all of them fell by the sword. The first king who was given dominion as part of this, uh, of this kingdom on earth was Nebuchadnezzar, and we see that in uh, Nebuchadnezzar's vision that was interpreted by Daniel in chapter 2 of Daniel. We read, you, O king, are the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the son of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold. So this was the end of the theocratic kingdom in Israel. So that when we see them return to their kingdom before the time of Christ, this wasn't a return of the, the greatness of the Israeli the, theocracy in the land of Israel. But that 
baton had been passed to uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, who had led them into captivity uh, in 586 BC. And this, uh, this kingdom has transferred from Gentile nation to Gentile nation even until now. We see that the Medo-Persians came after Nebuchadnezzar and Greece came after that, and then Rome came after that. Now, Rome, we could say, is on pause at the moment, but it essentially is Europe, which was broken down out of the Roman Empire, um, divided and basically collapsed, but it was never taken up another world government again. A world government is coming later on, and this will be the last Gentile kingdom, the resurrected Roman kingdom. So Daniel in chapter 7, verses 7 to 8 writes, after this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them. And three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. Now, we need this interpreted for us because it's, uh, it's a little strange. But thankfully, the angel who gave this vision to Daniel also interprets it for him a few verses later. So we read, thus he said, the force fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them, and he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the seats of the highest one. He will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. So this last kingdom, again, uh, Daniel continues here, but for the court will sit, or, but the court will sit for judgment and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated and destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole earth will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. So this time of the Gentiles, where the Gentiles trample on Israel, uh, is coming to an end. But we see that this temple uh, that will be in the last uh, seven years of history is going to be trampled on for 42 months on, in the outer courts. So Daniel 7 uh, verses 11 to 12, then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. So this is the Antichrist which he's speaking about. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. And that appointed period of time, again, when we get to the end of Revelation, we'll see that it was for a thousand years that the other nations, not the Antichrist kingdom, 
but the other kingdoms were allowed to continue into the millennial kingdom with Jesus Christ as the head of the earth, the world kingdom, these sub-rulers under him. Uh, we read next in Daniel chapter 7, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So, again, we want to go back to the context here. John has eaten this scroll, which correlates with the same prophecies of a coming kingdom, which the prophets of old were given. And it was sweet, because he knows that this time where Jesus Christ will sit over the world as the ruler is coming. But until that time, his own people, the Jewish people, will be trampled down, this continuation of the Gentile, or the time of the Gentiles, because of Israel's previous rejection of the kingdom. So that uh, we, we can see here in Ezekiel that uh, Israel will be restored, but we know that before that restoration happens, they had to undergo terrible torment. One of those torments uh, we have pretty close to our own lifetimes being the Holocaust, but the time of the end that is yet coming upon them, which will be the time of the Antichrist's rulership, will be far worse even than the Holocaust was. Uh, that I can't remember what the numbers were. I think it was a third of Israel as well will be um, destroyed by the Antichrist, but that's, that's a little later in chapter 13. Uh, but we do have the promise here that Israel will be restored, and that comes from Ezekiel 39. This is after the dry bones passage um, of 37 and the Gog-Magog War of 38. We see that a restoration uh, spiritually is coming to Israel after their restoration in unbelief. So their restoration in unbelief has already happened uh, to a degree, where they're in their land again. They are living as the nation of Israel, but they are not in belief. Belief is necessary for them to be obedient to the Mosaic law. For them to be, or their obedience to the Mosaic law in placing a king of God's choosing over them is necessary for Christ to rule over them. And that is what will happen at the end of the tribulation period. And we see that in view here in Ezekiel 39. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel, and I will be just for my holy name. They will forget their disgrace and all their treachery, which they perpetrated against me, when they live securely on their own land with no one to make them afraid. When I bring them back from the peoples and gather them from the lands of their enemies, then I shall be sanctified through them in the sight of the many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord, their God, because I made them go into exile among the nations and then gathered them again to their own land. And I will leave none of them there any longer. I will not hide my face from them any longer, for I have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, declares the Lord. 
So this little book, uh, they are the words of God, which are sweet to John's lips because they are the words of the end, the final conquering Jesus Christ, where he will take back uh, the kingdom of this world. But they are bitter because the time between John's prophecy and the end uh, will come at an extreme uh, loss to the number of Israel and pain on the house of Israel. But these final three and a half years of the Gentile kingdoms on this earth will be a time of particular violence against Jerusalem. So that when we turn to chapter 11 next, we see how the whole book kind of takes a Jewish shift. Um, it's still going to be dealing with the whole world, but we're going to see uh, Israel isolated from the whole world by the Antichrist. All right. And with that, we have finished chapter 10. Any questions or comments? Good stuff. <laughs> you like that one? <laughs> yeah. So interesting. I mean, I just sit here and I think about it and I just like, think about why people just don't have, I mean, obviously they're blinded, but it just makes sense. We, you hear about it and you think about all the other religions and philosophies of the world and why this one makes sense versus the others. And it's just, you can't find fault with this one. Amen. It's just all woven together. It all ties together. It all explains everything. Supports, yeah. you know, everything supports the other. One scripture supports the other. It's just, it's really cool. Well, yeah, no, I had fun because chapter 10, I mean, as you read through it, it's pretty short. It's just 11 verses and there doesn't seem to be really much going on it, but it's, there's so much going on in every sentence thing. And that's one reason why Revelation is so fun because we have the entire canon before it to pull from. Uh, whereas if we're in Genesis, the original audience for Genesis didn't have the revelation that came later on. So they yeah. couldn't see as clearly as we're able to see as when we look at Revelation. But uh, imagine receiving this as the first century church and uh, seeing that there's persecution coming ahead. Uh, but just like John, as bitter as that persecution is, the word of the Lord is sweet because he's coming again. Have you, uh, I'm just curious, you know, I sit here and I think about Israel's leadership right now. And they obviously, yeah. right, they don't believe Jesus is the Messiah. So they don't right. give much credence to the New Testament, but they believe the Old Testament, right? And yeah, so you sit here and you read this stuff and mm -hmm. they're not uneducated about what the Old Testament says. It makes mm -hmm. me wonder what they think when they see that a third of their, you know, they're going to be isolated. A third of them are going to be destroyed. And the Antichrist is going to come against them. It's just like, yeah. what do they think? And that's what's really interesting because the book of Revelation is unlike any other New Testament book. It basically is an Old Testament book written during the New Testament. Uh, all of its imagery and everything about it draws mostly from the Old Testament. So that it should be a very comfortable book for Jewish people, but uh, it's not accepted because it, uh, it preaches Jesus Christ as the king. But uh, even if they if don't want to accept Revelation, you sit there and listen to what Isaiah and Ezekiel have to say, right? I mean, exactly. I mean, take them to Ezekiel or Isaiah 53, and you can show them Jesus Christ in chapter 53. In fact, Isaiah has the most 
complete concept of redemption under Christ. Uh, so that it's kind of hard to see how when Christ came on the scene, just a knowledge of Isaiah would point towards him as, as the Christ who was promised. Yeah. What yeah. verse did he quote uh, in the temple? I think it was a verse from Isaiah where he was in the temple and he said, uh, the, uh, well, he read a portion of scripture and then said, this has been fulfilled today in your hearing. Um, so it was about the coming of the Lord. Well, he was reading from the Old Testament and relating that to his uh, present ministry on earth, offering the kingdom of God. And that's, that's a sad thing. I mean, as, as we look, especially in the gospel of Matthew, and we see Israel's progressive rejection of Jesus Christ as their king. But we look back into the prophets uh, of all of the glorious things that are offered in the kingdom. And we realize that when he came offering the kingdom with him as the king, that's what they were rejecting. All of these wonderful, amazing uh, promises. I mean, just read Ezekiel 40 to 48. Uh, that is, uh, that's all about the coming kingdom. So that a Jew would read that with excitement and with joy and with hope that they have a glorious kingdom greater than the kingdom of Solomon ever could have been. Uh, and all they have to do is accept the king of God's choosing. Uh, and that's back from Deuteronomy 17. And we're going to look at that uh, in a couple of weeks here. But, you know, I, I think we're going to have a good time looking at the Mosaic Covenant because it's it takes up the majority of Old Testament. I mean, from Exodus 19 all the way to, to Romans 5. Uh, that's all uh, during the time of the law, excluding Acts, because Romans 5 looks back to the cross. Um, and that's when Paul declares that Christ finished the law on the cross. But all of that I mean, that's, that's the biggest hunk of scripture you could divide out. I think it's more than 80%. But it's probably the most misunderstood uh, covenant, except for the covenants uh, with Abraham. So that those two together pretty much give you a context or a framework for all of scripture. So Genesis 12, starting with Abraham, that it if you misinterpret that, everything from that forward is going to be difficult to understand and to really put your feet down on solid ground. Uh, so that, that's why we're doing the foundations every couple of weeks. Um, so that when we get to the end of Revelation, we're all calibrated in the same direction. Yeah. Well, yeah. good stuff, man. Keep it up. Thanks for teaching us. Yeah, no problem. By, by the way, I I remember those books I promised you. I brought them to Sherry, so they'll be here for the barbecue. Awesome. Thank you. Cool. No problem. Very all right. cool. Well, if that's it, uh, I'll pray in closing, and we'll say goodnight. Okay, sounds good. All right. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your promise of uh, your kingdom yet to come. We pray, Lord, that you hasten the day. Uh, and that you also fill your church before that time comes, that everyone who would believe will believe in the glorious name of Jesus Christ for salvation. 
So Lord, uh, we want to give you all the glory and all of the thanksgiving. Uh, that though we might face difficulties today, we know there are greater difficulties to come, but at no point are your promises uh, able to fail that you will be victorious over this world system. So Lord, we thank you and we give you all the glory in your glorious name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Have a great week. Uh, good, happy, safe 4th of July. Yeah, you too. Thank you. Too. Okay. Bye. Bye. See you. Bye. Thank you.